morning, you all. It's so good to be here. And um, what a delight to see the way you all are continuing to build your church in this unusual time. Such a rich worship service already this morning, and now another wonderful time to be together and to hear and receive from the Lord. And uh, as a quick aside, I'm also looking forward to having zero music stands blow down during this sermon. Um, that will be a slight uptick of, of enjoyment. Um, but the uh, thing I really enjoy being able to do is when I get to preach at different places is really and truly bring you this morning greetings from your brothers and sisters in Christ at Christ Presbyterian Church in New Haven. Uh, they've sent me here today. They love you all. They pray for you. I think if I've got my bearings, we only are about 25 miles that way. Just there's a lot of water in between us and you. But uh, we're pretty close, you know, and we're very close in the Lord as sister churches and also just philosophically and energetically committed to church planting, which I think every church is theoretically, but not every church is really on the, on the train, as it were. And so what a joy to be in partnership with you all this morning. Um, now, here's a question I have for you. Uh, the question is, are you tired? Do you get tired? And obviously not a reference to all of our need for physical sleep. We all, we all get tired. I suppose uh, some created things don't need sleep, like rocks, but no created beings don't need sleep. We are finite and dependent and contingent. So of course we get tired in that way. Of course, though, that's not what I'm really asking. This isn't a health I'm not a doctor. <laughs> um, I'm asking, do you get tired emotionally, existentially, just in your being, in the desire to wake up and put one foot in front of the other and move through your days? And we are all there sometimes. We all get tired. And so wouldn't it be amazing and delightful if there really was such a thing as a not a perpetual motion machine, but perpetual motivation machine where within the heart, within the soul, this presence keeps you moving forward. What if there really was such a thing? And of course, we have already sung enough this morning and confessed our faith enough to know there is such a presence of God himself for the believer. But the passage we're going to look at this morning looks at that really carefully and points us to this beauty of the resurrection of Jesus. Um, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going to give a spoiler for a, the end of a movie, a movie that there's a couple of us in here I wouldn't, couldn't recommend that you'd see it because it's a very violent and gory movie. And it's been out long enough where I don't mind giving away the ending. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but it's a movie called Snowpiercer, and it takes place in this dystopian future when it's a new ice age has come and the only humans left on earth are surviving on this train called the Snowpiercer. And the train has to go around the world and around the world constantly. And by doing that, is able to generate energy to keep itself going and, and supply life for the people on board. But where does the train itself get the energy? Supposedly, this mad billionaire genius invented the secret of perpetual motion. And so that's how he lured people onto the train in the first place. Well, 
at the end of the movie, you find out as the good guys break into the engine room of the train and they pull back floorboards, it's revealed a mystery. The mystery is revealed of what was keeping the train running. And it was small children that had been put down into the engine room of the train to keep the little tiny parts moving with their little hands and their little feet. And because there's always new children being born, there's a perpetual supply of these little children they could put down into the engine room to run the machinery. It's a gruesome reveal. Here's the mystery. Something horrific. Something, one big lie, one big con job. Do you ever wonder if the Christian faith is that? This resurrection of Jesus that was 2,000 years ago, could that just be some big con job? That you pull back the floorboards and there's really nothing there, or worse, something gruesome there is there, just lies. Well, that's what Paul gets into here in 1 Corinthians 15. Some of you know, I mentioned it earlier, but um, this past summer, my father passed away, and it was somewhat sudden. He was diagnosed with cancer, and then just two months later, the Lord took him home. And as we made heavy use of 1 Corinthians 15, our passage this morning, with my dad around his hospice bed, uh, around the dinner table, um, it was, I was just being reminded that the, the thought that has come, come to me every single time I've ever done a, a funeral or memorial service in the 25 years or so I've been a pastor, the thought always comes to me as we're making use of 1 Corinthians 15, the thought always comes to me, why do I save this and only use this at funerals? <laughs> this is so powerful and magical. And the effect that I was noticing was that the effect of reading 1 Corinthians 15 together as a family, it was certainly an encouragement to my father, certainly, without any question. But it was having a deep effect on the rest of us. It was having a deep effect on showing us this internal perpetual motivation machine, this resurrection of Christ that really and truly is that mystery, not some reveal that ends up being a con job or a big lie. But right in the middle of our 1 Corinthians 15 text, Paul says, behold, I tell you a mystery. So let's pray together before we read our text this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for the resurrection of Christ and for this passage, which explains it and declares it and persuades us of its truth this passage that you inspired by your Holy Spirit and have been sending through your church to people everywhere for 2,000 years, and you're sending it to us today here in the Hamptons on a September morning in 2020. You're giving us this gift of this passage. So put it deeply in our hearts, our minds, our souls. Help us to feel it and taste it and touch it and believe it and breathe it in, this good news, this mystery of the resurrection of Christ. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, you already have probably noticed it's a very wonderfully rich but long passage. So we're going to read it section by section. We'll read a section and then just try to describe and explain and declare the good news from that section and then go to the next section, read it, and so on and so on. So let's start with these first 11 verses as Paul 
writes this letter to this church. Now, this is a church that he himself had planted. Mark, you know, by God's grace, was sent here by the church of Jesus, by the presbytery to plant this church. What is it, 14 years ago? Something, seven, something yeah, roughly 14 years ago or so, planting this church. So the Lord sent Paul to plant the church in Corinth. But then he had, thankfully for the early church, he had other church planting work for Paul to do and sent him onward to other churches to plant. Thankfully, that's not what the Lord did here. He's kept Mark here to build this church. Well, Paul gets word that the church he had planted and invested in for more than a year of his life, a year and a half of his life, he gets word that some bad ideas have been able to, have been starting to creep in and slow their church down bring their church even to a grinding halt in some ways, these bad ideas. And so he knows that this work of proclaiming the gospel must always be followed up with discipleship, just as you all are doing here. And so he says, I don't want the train of discipleship to be slowed down. And here's these four really bad ideas that I got word are creeping in And I'm going to now tell you all why you can't let those bad ideas creep into your brain, your heart, your soul, your church. So he writes this letter to them, and we'll see these bad ideas one by one, these four bad ideas as we read this sort of in the four sections of our text. All right, so beginning with verse 1, chapter 15, Paul writes them, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive though some have fallen asleep. And then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach and so you believe. Here he is declaring this good news, this gospel of the resurrection of Christ. But notice something that not everybody notices. The resurrection of Christ as a bare fact, a historical reality, is not in and of itself good news for everyone. Notice that Paul says that this resurrection of Christ is followed up with the grace of Christ. Think if in those moments where Paul, in his life, Paul was the sort of man that for a certain frame of his whole first part of his life, if he had gotten word of this church having a worship service, streaming online now, if he'd been driving by and hearing praise songs to Jesus, he was a sort of man 
that would have literally stopped everything, walked into the church, bringing backup with him, calling his friends, and then physically laying hands on you, on the Christians, and physically dragging you to church. Is the resurrection of Christ welcomed by a person like that if there is no chance of that Christ forgiving them? If there is no chance of that Christ showing mercy to them? If there is no chance of that Christ showing grace to them? That Paul would not have welcomed the resurrection of that sort of Christ who will, by the way, come back one day with a sword in his hand. And so the resurrection in and of itself is not good news unless that resurrection is received by the heart asking for grace and mercy. We um, had these precious times with my dad in his final days, and just a couple days, or maybe the very day before he passed away, we had hospice care at home, and he mustered some strength to just ask us to call the whole family in and surround him around the bed. We were getting sort of individual visits, but this was this chance for all of us to be there. And he he just shared, by the way, today's his birthday. (laughs) So it's sort of an honor to talk about my dad in a way. But um, so he he shared some precious things. Um, But then at the the end of it, as he finished sort of talking to us, we noticed that he actually sort of directed his eyes up And he said, remember me in mercy. He said, remember me in mercy. And a couple of family members immediately said, oh, of course, Dad. Like, of of course, we, we love you. Like, we're, but then we caught on. He was not saying those words to us. Here was this man who had served our country as a career naval officer his whole life, had served his community, had served his church, On the last Sunday of his life, his church read a proclamation declaring him a deacon emeritus. He had served as the chairman of the deacons for 20 years. Here's this man who had served his country, loved his family well, served the church of Jesus Christ, saying, Lord, give me what I deserve. I'm so glad you're resurrected to take good people like me to heaven. No, no, no. (laughs) He says, Lord, remember me in mercy. We began our worship service that way, didn't we, with Psalm 5, if you remember, this call to worship that says, Lord, remember me in mercy. Our entrance into your presence is by your mercy. And so that's bad idea number one, is that it is sufficient to believe in the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I don't need grace. I believe in the the resurrection of Jesus Christ And it's for good people like me. That's bad idea number one. We need grace. So let's go on to the second passage, second section of our passage, beginning with verse 12, because another bad idea has crept in. And you see it right away here with verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith is in vain. We are even found worse than that. We are found to be lying, basically. We are found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he didn't raise, if it's true that the dead aren't raised. 
For if the dead aren't raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. And then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, they've perished. If in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstborn, and then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead aren't raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why am I in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. But what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let's just eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. But don't be deceived, brothers. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from this bad idea number two. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. All right, so what's bad idea number two? It's really kind of simple. Bad idea number two is this this denial. I don't believe in the historical reality of the resurrection because there is no such thing as resurrection. There just is not a next life. This life is all there is. Don't you see that? I can't believe in the resurrection because there just is no such thing as spiritual reality, as a next life. Some years ago, I remember watching an episode of David Letterman interviewing, this is a bunch of years ago, and he was interviewing uh, a Watergate co-conspirator who had helped to um, just, you know, all that Watergate conspiracy stuff. And he, he was one of the instigators. He was one of the bad guys. And he's there talking about it and sort of defending his actions. And somehow they got onto this topic of like, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't really matter because when we die, we die. And David Letterman said something like, you mean that's it? And the guy said, yep, that's it. And David Letterman said, what? Like, you really believe that? That when we die, that, that's it? And the guy just goes, worm food, worm food. We just become worm food. Well, here's a, another spoiler alert. This idea that there is no such thing as the next life. It, there's no such thing as spiritual reality. No one actually believes that. Some small percentage of people in human history lie to themselves and say they believe that, but no one actually believes that. 
The scriptures teach in Romans chapter 1 that every human heart, everybody who's ever lived is now alive on, on live streaming or here or will ever live, knows there is a God, knows there's a judgment day coming, knows one's obligations are to this God, that there is a spiritual reality. Every human heart has always, will, now always, will always know this reality. But Romans 1 goes on to say, but some people lie to themselves and suppress the truth. It's like this picture of, I don't know if you've gone to the beach with a big beach ball this summer and trying to take that beach ball and push it under the water. Depending on the size of the ball, you can't do it at all. But if it's relatively small, maybe you can do it for a time, but it can't be permanent. You can't suppress this truth that there is a next life forever. If you're in that small percentage of people that is suppressing that truth, you can't suppress that truth forever. It's a bad idea. But the vast majority of us know there is this next life. And so Paul is saying the discipleship of the church is just going to crash and burn. The train is going to go off the rails if we think there can't be any such thing as a resurrection. There's no next life. There's no life to come, life of the world to come. He just simply says, here it is. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead is the doorway that opens up that passage into the next life for all of us. He is the first fruits bringing with him this whole harvest of people into this next life. Well, Paul then goes on because word has gotten to him that at least this, there's another bad idea, bad idea number three. And that is apparent right away as we continue with the passage. Verse 35, you'll see bad idea number three right away. <clears throat> Paul goes on and says, now someone will ask, yeah, Paul, but how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? Ha, ha, ha. Paul says, you foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen and to each kind of seed its own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies, there are earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is of one kind, the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, another glory of the moon, another glory of the stars. Even the stars differ from each other in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown, this little tiny seed, is perishable. But what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. Now, if there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it's not the spiritual that's first, but the natural. And then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. 
And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Do you see that bad idea number three? Just right away there in this passage. This is this idea that we can't believe in the historical reality of the resurrection of a dead body because that idea is frankly just embarrassing. It's frankly ridiculous. It's frankly impossible. We've seen bodies go into the ground. We know what happens to those bodies. They decompose. We've seen skulls and bones. We've seen the TV show The Walking Dead. We know that they're just zombies. Dead bodies, when they come back to life, are decomposing zombies. The idea that there's this resurrection of a thing that we see with our eyes is now dust into a repurposed, beautiful thing, that's just ridiculous, and it's embarrassing. We can't hold to it. Now, don't get us wrong. We still think Christ was raised as an idea, as 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 an image as a spiritual truth that gives us incentive and motivation. But this whole other idea of a physical resurrection is just frankly embarrassing. So that's, Paul gets word that that's infecting the church. And so he writes this very wonderfully and strongly worded letter to say, essentially what he says back to them is, brothers, here's what's embarrassing. Anybody who has spent five minutes looking at the natural world, anybody who's taken a a handful of seeds, put them in the ground, and see what results from those seeds, seeds that might even look alike, like zucchini, tomato plant, kernel of wheat, whatever, and then they, when they come to life, look so different from each other and so different from the original seed, anybody who spent five minutes looking and considering God's creativity and power and love, frankly, here's the embarrassing idea. The embarrassing idea is is that you would think that God's creativity and love and power ends at the grave. That's embarrassing. For you who claim to be believing in Jesus, that's embarrassing. And he goes on, he says, "And, and anybody who's looked up at the sky for five minutes, and seeing the wonder and the glory of the things out in the sky. And he says, the sun and the moon differ from each other in glory. Just think about that for a moment. Because, by the way, to our eyes, all that the sun and the moon have in common is that they just happen to be in the the sky above us. That's literally all they have in common. One is so far away and a gaseous, fiery ball. The other is a rock pretty close. That's literally all they, but to our eyes, they look the same. And Paul's saying, but think about it. Are you so ridiculous as to think they are the same? Last night, uh, Mark, uh, took, Mark and Leslie took me out to the, to the beach. Long, it was Long Beach, is that right? To see the sunset and saw some other friends there. It was just so much fun just to spend more than five minutes out in the beauty of God's creation. And we, we of course, got to see the sun set. This beautiful, just Just so gorgeous. I hope you're doing that, taking advantage of that, seeing the sunset. Why live in the Hamptons if you're not going to look at the sunset, you know? So 
But then, I don't know how much longer it was. We sort of lost track of time, maybe an hour or so later. We saw the sun set, but then an hour or so later, we saw the moon rise, and it was close to a full moon. And we were realizing, like, well, here's what happened. I mean, right? This is what happened. The sun went down, and underneath us now, under the globe, under the planet, all the sunlight is blasting off this rock in the sky and reflecting back to us. Anybody who spends five minutes considering something like that, Paul says, you think God's love, who created all that, is hindered by the grave? That's embarrassing. That's ridiculous. And frankly, theologically, the real God in view, that's impossible. It is impossible for anything to stop God's love. So that's bad idea number three, and Paul takes it head on. But he's not done because another bad idea has crept in. So let's pick up with this, the last long section here, uh, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin. The power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the present tense there. He gives us right now the victory. So this is Paul taking head-on bad idea number four, this final bad idea that is threatening to just shut down the growth of the church and make that train of Christian discipleship just screech to a halt. And that's bad idea number four, which is, well, we do believe, actually, in the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ. And we do believe that there is such a thing as life after death. And we do believe that it's actually a physical resurrection. We're going to enjoy the new heavens and the earth with Christ. But it's only going to make a difference to our real lives later, the day we die. It doesn't really help much right now. Other things matter more, and I need other things. Other things just are what really matter. This resurrection of Christ, which I believe in, has no present value for me. All right. That's bad idea number four. Very few people will say that out loud the way I just did, but I think we all say that to ourselves internally way too often. I believe in the resurrection. I know I'm going to heaven, but come on. I just need help right now in other ways. It just does, has no practical value for me right now. And Paul just takes that head on. He uses the present tense. We have a present victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Just, just think about it. Think about it for a moment. Just think about this whole idea of what resurrection even is. Resurrection really is the last scene of the movie. 
where there isn't just some horrible reveal about some mystery that's just like a big, long, horrible con job. It's the last scene of a movie. It's the last chapter of a wonderful, most magical fairy tale. The new heavens and the new earth come. And so here's the thing. We're in a fallen world in this present evil age, as Paul describes it in Galatians. Resurrection has no place. It's not, uh, it's not of this present world. But what Jesus came to do, like a visitor from the future, is bring this reality of a future age, a glorious age of resurrection and life and beauty, and he broke it backwards into here and now, into this present fallen age. Paul says that in Ephesians 1, that this is this death and resurrection of Christ displayed God's plan for the fullness of time. The whole of human history is displayed in the cross and the resurrection, and it's broken backwards so that we can see it now. The plan of the ages, the end of the very ages has come, Paul said just a couple chapters earlier in this very book. So if something as final and magical and glorious as the resurrection of the dead, which is not supposed to happen until the future glorious age, until the last chapter, until the end of all time, has indeed happened in Christ with his resurrection, then our future glorious and beauty has been broken backwards now into history, into our present experience. This means that resurrection, which is not a present age thing, it is a end of time thing. It is a future age, glorious culmination and renewal of all things thing. This resurrection which has appeared, that means that love and joy and peace have broken backwards into this present age. It means that everything about your present experience can now be touched by the glorious future age. Everything matters now and can be made beautiful. Little things like changing a diaper. (laughs) Bigger things like trying to grow a whole church. Everything is now not just up to us and our wherewithal and our best abilities and whether we've got enough motivation to just keep putting one foot. It is now empowered by the future resurrection age brought back into our present experience. This is remarkable. And it leads us now to the big reveal of this chapter pulling back the floorboards and finding what the mystery is of perpetual motion, perpetual motivation. It's that final verse here. In light of all this, Paul says, I have shown you the secret. I have shown you the mystery. Therefore, my beloved brothers and sisters, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Let me read that again using Paul, uh, uh, Eugene Peterson's translation, the message. With all that's going for us, brothers and sisters, my dear, dear friends, stand your ground. Don't hold back. Throw yourselves into the work of Jesus, your Lord, confident that nothing you do for him is a waste of time or effort. With all that's going for us, brothers and sisters, here in, in the flesh, online, virtually, all that you have going for you as a congregation Think of this presence of Christ himself, the inner mystery 
the perpetual motivation machine. All the difference he makes going back through those four ideas. What difference does it make? Think of the difference it makes that now we have not just the resurrection of Christ, but grace, the grace of Christ. Think of the difference that we have knowing that this life is not all there is. There really is a life to come. There really is a new heaven, a new earth, a new, a, a new world, a life everlasting, a world without end, where we will be resurrected with Christ and with all of God's family. Think of all we have going for us. And that third bad idea, think of what we have going for us, that we actually know that the idea of our dead bodies being raised with Christ is not embarrassing or ridiculous. In fact, it's profoundly beautiful. It's real. God's love does not stop at the cemetery gate. And think of that final thing we have going for us, that we know the glorious and perfect and future age has broken backward into right now, into the the discipleship and building up of Grace Hamptons. This time, this place with you, this congregation, the glorious and perfect future age is broken backwards right into your lives. This means that nothing you do for him, nothing you do in the building of this church, in the building of your lives, in the building of your family is a waste of time or effort. None of it will be washed away with the next tide. All of it is part of the glorious new age and new heavens and new earth. The resurrection of Jesus Christ really is our perpetual motivation machine. Brothers and sisters, Paul says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. Let's pray. Thank you, O Lord, for this glorious reveal of the mystery. You could have theoretically kept it to yourself, or you could have, in your resurrection, come back with no grace whatsoever. But thank you for this glorious reveal that you revealed to us the glorious news of Christ resurrected and delivered it to us with grace and mercy and forgiveness. Put this truth deeply in our hearts so that we don't get uh, train wrecked by any any of these bad ideas. Keep us moving forward as your people here. In Christ's name we pray, amen.